As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We are jumping back into the book of Ephesians. Um, some of you may have recognized that we were going through the book of Ephesians last year, but we stopped short of finishing the entire book, and we stopped in Ephesians chapter 6 um, at verse 9. And so this morning, we're going to pick the series back up, and we're going to do about five weeks looking at a really important section of God's Word, and one that many Christians are familiar with. It contains, after all, the armor of God, and it reminds us that we are in a battle. The series title that we're entering into is Battle Ready, and that that really sums up what the Apostle Paul is getting at and is at the heart of this text. He wants us to be reminded that we are indeed soldiers, that we are in a war, and that we need to be battle ready if we're going to thrive and succeed. It's fitting that uh, today is Remembrance Day, and we're entering into a series called Battle Ready. That was not planned uh, by us. Uh, It was certainly planned by the Lord. But Remembrance Day, um, as we know, is observed on, on the 11th of November every year in most countries around the world to recall the end of the hostilities of World War I. In 1918, hostilities formally ended at the 11th hour of the 11th day on the 11th month. During that four-year war, thanks to new military technologies and the horrors of trench warfare, World War I saw unprecedented levels of carnage and destruction By the time the war was over and the Allied powers claimed victory, more than 16 million people, soldiers and civilians alike, were dead. There were many battles over those four years. There was much bloodshed, and there were, as we've just heard, massive, massive casualties. It was a a, a long and gruesome war of attrition that had devastating consequences, not only at the time, but for years and even decades to follow And in the face of the enemy attack, it was imperative that some would rally together and instead of collapse or flee, instead of simply strive to preserve their own lives, would instead determine to stand firm and to fight. And as hard as it may be, I want you to try to imagine how different the world might be today if evil stood unopposed and no one would stand and fight. But I wonder if you'll consider that this is the reality for many Christians. In the foreword to his magisterial work entitled The Christian in Complete Armor, a Puritan William Girdle wrote in the 1650s in regards to the passage we're going to look at this morning. And by the way, it is a magisterial work. It is about 1,200 pages long, written in Old English. And uh, praise the Lord for modern translations and abridged versions. He wrote in the foreword to this magisterial work these words. He said, the subject of this treatise is solemn, a war between the saints and Satan. And it is such a bloody one that the cruelest war ever fought by men will be seen as but sport and child's play compared to this. It is a spiritual war that you shall read of, not a history of what was fought many ages past and is now over, but of a war that is now going on. The tragedy is present with us. And it is not taking place at the farthest end of the world. It concerns you and everyone who reads of it. The stage on which this war is fought is every man's own soul. There are no neutrals in this war, 
The whole world is engaged in the quarrel, either for God against Satan or for Satan against God. So here's the question. Knowing that we are living in the greatest war this universe has ever seen, knowing that the battle is raging all around us, knowing that there are no neutral parties in this war, the question for you and I is very simple this morning. Are you battle ready? Are you battle ready? Are you prepared for this battle the way that God intends you to be prepared? That's where the Apostle Paul is bringing us to in his letter to the Ephesian church. After all that he's written, after six chapters of theology and practice, he brings us to this final place and reminds us that we are in the midst of a war. And if all that's taken place before in the six chapters prior to this portion here is being practiced and lived out, we need to be ready. Paul writes this. Let's just look at the first three verses in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Let's read it together. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, if we are being formed by what this book is is forging within us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we must be battle ready. Here's what that looks like as we look at the text. I'm battle ready first if I'm aware of my enemy. I'm battle ready if I'm aware of my enemy. Now, what I want to do is I want to march through these three verses in reverse order. And I hope that it becomes clear why we're doing that in just a moment. I want to begin um, at the first word of verse 10, but then I want to backtrack a little bit and go through verses 12 all the way back through verse 10. Paul says the word finally, and that's just going to set the scene in terms of context for us to recall that this is the end of what Paul has been teaching the church throughout this book known as Ephesians. Paul has a purpose, and as he, as he writes this letter to the Ephesian church, he is teaching the church, if you remember back to last year, and for those of you who weren't with us, his primary purpose in writing to the church is to strengthen the church, but here's how he does that. He reminds the church that God, in and through Christ, is reconciling all things back to himself. That's at the very heart of this letter. That God is going to take this world that is messed up and distorted by sin, and he's eventually going to bring back the order from the disorder. He's going to bring back peace from the chaos. And the way he's going to do that is through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And this letter is putting on display the cosmic significance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the entire universe that is destroyed and distorted by sin will one day all be put back together. And he begins by by demonstrating this reality through individual believers. You see that the universe is going to be put back together, and we can know that because God has taken us, the rebels, who have caused this mess in the first place because of our sin, and he said, I will take you in your messed up sinful condition, rebellious state, and I will make you right with me. I will restore you and reconcile you to me. And then he further proves this by looking at the church, and he says, look, the church demonstrates this to the world, that here in this place are a bunch of messed up sinners, broken by sin, saved by grace, and now, not only united back to God, but united together 
God can take two irreconcilable people groups, he says, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he can create one new man, this beautiful picture of unity and restoration. And he says, don't you understand that this is a message to the world of what God is one day going to do for it? We then, as Paul has made this clear, as we are the first fruits of God's reconciling work and redeeming work, we become the primary targets of the enemy. You see, the cosmic implications of the gospel remind us that we are in the midst of a cosmic battle. Christian, you need to understand this. You have a target on your back. If you're a follower of Christ, you have, whether you know it or not, placed an incredibly large target on your back, and the enemy is looking directly at it. He is seeking to do great damage to you because of what God has done for you in Christ. Kind of the flow of the book of Ephesians, it can be broken down oftentimes into two parts. There's a, the first half and the second half, and the first three chapters, the second three, but most scholars actually break it down into three parts. See, the first three chapters kind of can call us to sit, to sit in the, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the, the doctrine that is true of us, and then the, the next few chapters talk about what it means to walk, to walk in the truth, to demonstrate the truth of the gospel in our lives. And then the last portion that we look at right here calls us to stand. Some of them have kind of phrased it like this. The first three chapters give us the believer's wealth. The next couple of chapters up to 6 verse 9 give us the believer's walk. And then in chapter 6, 10 to the very end gives us the believer's warfare. Maybe I can give you one more. The first three chapters of the believer's beliefs. The second few chapters is the believer's behavior. And then it lands in chapter 6, 10 through the end is the believer's battle. The text is telling us that this battle is real. Paul used the same verb to appeal to Timothy as he says, finally, be strong. He says the same words to Timothy in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. The language here evokes the, the memory of God's repeatedly calling Joshua in the Old Testament in Joshua 1, verse 6 and 7 and verse 9 to be strong and courageous as he was about to lead God's people into the land of Canaan where they would face many enemies and fight many battles. The difference now, however, is that God's people face a more powerful enemy than any mere human opponent. So Paul is wanting us to embrace this reality right out the front. Listen, that there is a real battle because there is a real enemy of our soul. It's not a physical, fleshly enemy we wrestle with. Paul makes that abundantly clear in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not something that is earthly and physical. It is something that is heavenly and supernatural. You see, we wrestle with the devil. We are fighting a spiritual battle with an unseen realm where Satan and his demons are trying to work something very real against us. In the spiritual realm, Satan is trying to work things against us in our fleshly existence. And there are often two common mistakes we make when we think about Satan in the spiritual realm. And you know what they are, don't you? I mean, people often can see Satan and demons in everything or they see Satan and demon in nothing. And we see the, the polar opposites of this fleshed out in the Christian world and maybe even in some of our lives. You know, you're walking down the street and you stub your toe and you start rebuking the devil. 
You know, you watch this happen, you're like, e- easy, just relax a little bit, chill out. It's not always the devil, you might just be dumb. <laughs> you stub your toe, rebuke yourself, right? But maybe the greater danger than seeing Satan in everything is actually a failure to see Satan at all and a failure to see Satan in anything. Most Christians, I would argue, walk around unaware of the enemy that is seeking to destroy them. They walk around pretending like he doesn't exist just because they can't see him. And you see, a failure to be aware of our enemy leads to defeat by the enemy. What Paul describes here especially in verse 12, is astounding, and it should actually send some chills up your spine. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen to what he says we wrestle against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul stacks up term after term to describe the vast network of spiritual forces that are waging war against us at this very moment. What Paul describes here is a demonic network that is powerful, strategic, and effective. And all of these terms remind us of the cosmic battle that is being waged on the earth since the Garden of Eden, when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God. Some of you are asking the question, what exactly does this spiritual battle look like? Well, you know, the scripture gives us a lot of uh, windows into the spiritual battle. Oftentimes, we we don't get a clear picture, but every once in a while, the, the authors of scripture, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, give us a more vivid understanding of the nature of the spiritual war that is being waged around us. And I want you just to keep your finger in Ephesians chapter six. I want you to flip to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and I want you to see a a glimpse of this spiritual battle as it has been waged throughout history. John, the apostle and the author of the book of Revelation, has this vision, and in the middle of this vision, in Revelation chapter 12, God explains in one sense, or, or at least gives a picture of this Historic battle. And Revelation 12 depicts the graphic spiritual battle. It gives us a glimpse behind the, the heavenly curtain, the spiritual curtain, so to speak. And what you see here is a battle, and there's descriptive terms, there are metaphors being used here that give us a, an idea of the significance of this battle. It's a battle between a dragon and a pregnant woman. That's a battle, by the way, you never want to get involved with. <laughs> I'm not sure what's scarier. Just kidding, women. You're, you're lovely. You're glowing. It's a vivid picture, and it says in chapter 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant. It was crying out in the birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled in the wilderness where she was a place, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, just get the vivid imagery here. This is painting the cosmic sweep of this battle. That from the beginning of the garden, listen, in Genesis 3.15, there was a promise made to Eve that one would be born of her. And this child, born of this woman, his heel would be bruised, but eventually he would crush the head of the serpent. You see, he would be the end to the reign of the serpent. And from that moment on, at the very beginning of your Bibles, the war is being waged. The battle is on. Satan is looking for this child. He is watching. He is waiting. He is wondering who will be the one who will put me to death. Who will be the one who will strip me of my authority and my power and my dominion on the earth? Thousands of years go by before the promise is realized in Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, we get an actual glimpse, listen, pre-Adam pre and Eve. Listen to this. Now, a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and the angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon, you know, we often ask the question, where, where does Satan dwell? If you ask the average person, where is Satan living? Where are his demons? Where do they live? You know, most people, many Christians would tell you he's in hell. Listen to what the word of God says. He was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. You say, how many angels? Well, that's verse 4. His tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. One third of all the angels in heaven. And I don't know how many that is. The Bible isn't very clear. We just know this. It's legion upon legion. 10,000 upon 10,000. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And here's the awesome hope in this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you. Listen to this, church. Listen. In great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. You see this picture of this ferocious, terrifying dragon who rebelled against God, thinking he was powerful enough, thinking he deserved the honor and the glory of God Almighty. He loses this battle, but he is sent to the earth where his wrath is raging. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he sat back and kicked his feet up and relaxed. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she would be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and the woman to sweep her away with a, with a flood. But the earth came to help, the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Here it is, listen to this. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. 
This is a picture of how Satan is operating right now in this war. This monstrous dragon, its power and fury sweeps one-third of the angels to the earth in the rebellion against God. And you see how furious he is and you see that he cannot get to God. He hates God so much, but he can't do any damage to God himself. He can no longer go to heaven and go to war against God. So what does he do? He attacks and goes after what God loves most. But you see in this, the hope of victory, I think sometimes we can think about our enemy and we can be so terrified we make no strides and no gains in this victory. Here we're given actually the hope of victory. One is to be born of a woman. His heel, again remember, would be bruised, but he would crush the head of the serpent, the dragon. Listen church, we may feel weak and small in this battle. We may even feel overwhelmed at times, but remember, when it looked like Satan had won, it was really the beginning of the end. And the text tells us here in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, we wrestle with the devil himself. Now wrestling in the ancient world was one step below a battle to the death. It's not like wrestling right now with your kids, you know, you have a lot of fun. It's not like wrestling like the WWF, thank the Lord. In the ancient world, the loser of a wrestling match would have their eyes gouged out. Can you imagine how seriously you would take a wrestling match if you knew that if you lost, your eyes would be gouged out? <laughs> There's so much at stake in this wrestling. Now, I find this so fascinating that he uses the term wrestling. You see, wrestling implies close, close quarter combat. It's not like warfare nowadays, you know, where oftentimes you, know, you hit a button and you can send a missile or, or a nuke a thousand miles away. The idea here is that, that this grappling, this wrestling, it's personal, it's intimate, it's exhausting, it's breath on breath, it's sweat on sweat, it's blood on blood. And our opponent, the one we wrestle with, Satan, consider this, even based on what we've read, he was willing to rebel against God Almighty. What do you think he will try to do to you and me? Satan has no conscience. He's got no compassion, no remorse. He's got no morals. He feeds on pain and anguish and filth. And we are in a superhuman battle in which conventional tactics will not work. You say, well, how is our enemy wrestling against us? I mean, I want to know a little bit more specifically. He's endeavoring, listen, to work against all the areas that Paul has been talking about in the previous chapters. He's endeavoring to work against our relationships. The section just before this, remember how Paul outlines three separate relationships? Husband and wife, parents and children, worker and co-worker, slave and master. He's endeavoring to work against our sexuality. He's endeavoring to work against our character. He's endeavoring to work against all of those things and so much more. These, though, are the flesh and blood spaces in which the spiritual battle manifests itself. He's endeavoring to, to work against what we believe to be true in Ephesians 1 through 3, who we are as children of God, the inheritance that is ours in the Lord. Everything that God wants us to believe, you need to understand, Satan wants us to disbelieve and to doubt. Everything that God wants us to do, Satan himself wants us to dismiss and do the opposite. See, awareness of our enemy and his warfare, which is supernatural, personal, and dangerous, is the beginning of being battle-ready. 
So let me ask you again. Are you aware of the enemy? Are you taking him seriously? If you are, you'll do this next. I'm battle ready if I'm prepared for the fight. I'm battle ready if I'm prepared for the fight. You'll notice in verse 11, Paul says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Just hear that again, the devil has schemes. The Greek word is where we get the word method from. The devil has, has methods, he has tactics. He's got a strategic plan to take you and to take me down. He has thought about these things. He has tried them. He has tested them out on many others before you. He knows what will work and what won't work. He's got you figured out, probably more than you've got you figured out. What can we say about his schemes? There's so much, so much we can say about his schemes, but here's a few things. Listen, he has been honing his methods for millennia. He's been studying humanity since they were created. He is always working at deception. His name means deceiver, accuser, liar. He wants to deceive people about what they think about God, the world, and themselves. He's deceiving whole cultures to call what is evil good and what is good evil. He wants to muddy the waters socially, morally, ethically, theologically. First Timothy 4 says that there are doctrines of demons, a demonic set of teachings that are counter to the truth of Scripture. They are pervasive in our culture. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do this. Listen, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see how Satan works. It's primarily in the mind. It's primarily in the realm of information, of truth and error. 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan works spiritual blindness in our world. 2 Corinthians 11 says that he masquerades as an agent of God and so do his demonic minions. That they actually present themselves as messengers of truth and light. His strategies are carried out by countless minions. They're nearly always, listen, unseen, shrewd, and perfectly tailored for the victim. One commentator said this, that the mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. He says, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. Listen, this is the way Satan operates. You know, we have this image in our minds that, that Satan and his demons are like little babies with pitchforks. Or they're ghouls like we see you know, in horror films or on Halloween, that they look terrifying. Do you realize that the opposite is most often true? that what they present is beautiful and attractive. It's desirable, it's sweet, it tastes oh so good for that moment, but leads to total destruction. Satan is immensely powerful. 
imitating God's power and presence with his demonic hosts. He is evil beyond our wildest imaginations and his methods are diabolically cunning. And he, listen, he is after us. He is behind so much of the nastiness of this world, the violence, the perversion, the injustice, the abuse, the immorality. John 10.10, Jesus said this, that Satan is a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And again, we can be caught off guard by this, and we can be terrified by this, but listen to what John wrote about Jesus in 1 John 3.8. He said that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes triumphantly to destroy the works of the devil. And you can see this battle between these two waging, and we are caught up in this real cosmic war. A war that has strategic and devastating schemes that require intentional and effective preparation. Satan hates you. He hates the church of Jesus Christ. He is trying to take you down as an individual. He loves to take churches down. He wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy the church's witness to the world because that's why they're there in the first place. You know, this became very vivid to me this past week, and maybe for some of you, you saw in the news that a church just around the corner from here, Calvary Baptist Church, you guys see the news on that? A church, listen, who is faithfully, faithfully honoring the word of God and lovingly trying to restore a believer who's caught in sin is now being blasted publicly by the media, is being lied about, is being misunderstood. And you gotta, you gotta see this. Like th- This is a sign of the times. You realize that? Th- this is not just gonna be an isolated incident. This is the sign of the times, and this you have to believe this. This is the work of Satan, the underlying work of Satan, who is seeking to kill and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He hates the church of Jesus Christ. And he'll lie, he'll manipulate, he'll deceive, he'll publicly broadcast it, he'll do whatever he can to damage the reputation of the church because he knows it will damage the reputation of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know that what's happening to Calvary Baptist Church should concern us greatly, not just because of what may be down the road for us, but because those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul understood one thing. Paul knew that persecution was often the work of the enemy. He knew that very personally and intimately. He knew that the destruction of his own soul was what Satan was seeking, the destruction of the church, because he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. Guess what? Well, he sits in a prison cell for the gospel. And you don't want to know what Paul says because of his condition you need to do for him? Verse 19, just look at it with me real quick. He says, and also pray for me, pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Listen, one of Paul's answers to how we combat the enemy is through prayer, and specifically prayer for those who are being persecuted for the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to pause for a minute, and we want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being targeted right now. You realize that? People are are wanting to picket. People are wanting to try and disrupt services. This is happening right now, right around the corner. So let's pause, and let's unite our hearts in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's do that. Lord, we want to bow before you, and Father, we see the spiritual battle is real. 
And so, God, we lift up to you, Calvary Baptist Church. God, we first of all, we thank you for them. We thank you that they are our brothers and sisters. We thank you, Lord, that they love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that they are boldly proclaiming the truth. We thank you there, Lord, that believers are faithfully surrendered and submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, they're now suffering for it. And so we lift them up to you, Lord. And we pray that you would give them boldness and courage we pray, Lord, that, that this w- would not discourage them, but instead, Lord, this would energize them. We pray, Father, that this would be seen as a platform, as an opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as much as Satan wants to seek, kill, and destroy, we pray, Lord, that you would use this, Lord, to build up, to edify. Father, we pray for the leadership of the church. We ask that they would continue to stand firm in the face of public a misunderstanding and public ridicule and public abuse. Hold them fast, Lord, we pray as they hold fast to you. And God, we pray for the persecuted church around the world, Lord, because this is not an isolated incident. This has been happening since the inception of the church. God, we ask that you would help and strengthen and support those churches around the world who are faithfully suffering because they have been faithfully following you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We need to be prepared, church. We need to be prepared, and and my concern is that some of us are not prepared, and here's a few reasons why, why some of us may not be prepared in this room. First reason is that we're ignorant. And I mean that in the kindest sort of way. We simply don't know. We, we don't know about the spiritual battle. We don't know that this is so vital and so important, and so we, we simply haven't been living in light of it because we don't know. The second reason, though, is maybe a little bit more serious, is because some of us are arrogant. We just got this pride in our hearts. We're like, don't worry, don't worry about it. Satan's not that big of a deal. And we underestimate, listen, Satan's power, and we overestimate our own strength and ability. Be careful when you think you're standing firm, right? Can you just let those words sink in? Because stand firm is used in this text. The idea of standing is repeated four times. It's at the very heart of this text. Standing, standing, standing. And yet, we're reminded by the author of Hebrews, be careful when you think you're standing firm. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Satan loves to go after the prideful and the arrogant. He loves it when you think you've got it all figured out. He loves it when you're like, don't worry about Satan. Yeah, Satan's like, good, don't worry about me. Perfect. And here's maybe another reality for some of you, a reason why you're not prepared, just apathetic. You know, and you're not like, well, I'm not worried. You just don't care. And all of those realities, if they're present in your life, one or all, all of those mean you're dead in the battle. And so we need to seek to be informed to understand what the Word of God says about our enemy. That's what we're doing this morning. We need to seek to be humble, to not think that we're stronger than we are, to not think that we can somehow, you know, defeat Satan in our own strength. And we need to seek to be diligent. Not apathetic, but diligent and disciplined and moving forward. And here's what Paul says we must learn to do, to put on the whole armor of God. That's what he says in verse 11. And that's going to become one of the dominant themes in the rest of this passage. So so we're not going to get into that in too much depth right now, but you need to understand that this is part of the tactics that we must employ. We put on the armor of God. Every piece of armor, by the way, tells us something of the attacks of Satan. It tells us something about where Satan wants us to doubt or misbehave. 
Satan always wants to work against or undo what it is that Christ is wanting to do in our lives. Christ wants us to be filled with hope. Satan comes along and wants us to experience hopelessness. Christ wants us to experience great freedom in him, and Satan comes along and he wants to put us back under bondage to shame and guilt. Christ wants us to experience overwhelming peace in our lives and reconciliation, and here Satan comes along and wants us to experience anxiety and worry and to feel alienated from God. Christ says, I want you to be filled with hope and joy. Satan says, I want you to be depressed and discouraged. Christ says, I want to give you purpose on life and on mission for me. Satan comes along and says, I want you to be apathetic and lost and confused in life and on mission. Christ comes along and says, I want you to be lovers of truth. Satan says, I want you to be purveyors of lies. Christ says, I want you to be peacemakers. And Satan says, I want you to be perpetuators of conflict and division. There is a real battle. But here we're reminded, as he calls us to put on the whole armor of God, that there are real provisions made for us. That we don't need to simply sit back and take the enemy's onslaught And all of the pieces of armor we will look at in the coming weeks will protect us against the schemes and enable us to fight against them in the proper ways. All of this provision is given, let me say it again, so that we can stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. This is the posture we take in this battle. We stand firm. We stand resolved. We stand unmovable and unshakable. We will not be pushed back. We will not be beaten down. The good news in the text that we look at this morning is that we can actually stand. That's what we're reminded of, church. Like There's not a hopeless note in here. There's not a hopeless letter given to us here. It is all a message of great hope and great strength. We stand in the face of the enemy's onslaught. The armor is not only God's great provision for victory, but promises of victory for us. You say, I want this. I desperately want this in my life. I, I want this. I want to stand. I, how do I wrestle against the devil? How do I do this in my life? Here's how. It starts with a strength that is not your own. And that's what he says in verse 10. You see, if I'm ready, if I'm battle ready, I'm strong in the Lord. I'm battle ready if I'm strong in the Lord. That's really what this is all about. That's really, in one sense, what the armor is all about. Am I strong enough to fight and win the battle? Now listen, this is not a call for you to try harder, to be better, to be a man, to grow some facial hair. It's not it. He says, be strong in the Lord. I'm getting a little technical here, but this be strong in the Greek language is a passive imperative. You say, what does that mean? I have no idea. I read it in a book. I'm just kidding. I know. It's a passive imperative. It means this. And by the way, it's ongoing. It's, it's, it's a continual verb here. It's something that's done for us. That's what it means to be a passive verb. It's not something we ultimately do ourselves. It's something that is done for us and to us. You can kind of look at it like this. As, as God commanding us to be made strong in the Lord, to receive the strength that God has for you, 
This is a declaration about God's work in us. It is his might. Not that he is going to strengthen our own strength, but he's going to make us strong in his strength. That means who he is and what he has done is the source of our strength. How strong is his strength, you ask? There's no stronger. There is no greater. There's nothing that even compares. And guess what, church? It's actually made available to you and me. In one sense, Paul is telling us here to draw upon all of chapter 1 through 3. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember what I've done. Remember how I did it. In fact, let's just look briefly at how Paul employs this same language of strength back in Ephesians chapter 1. He prays in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, after he hears of their faith, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, the knowledge of him. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. What is that might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is above all of these powers that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. So however mighty and however powerful they are, whatever authority they have, they are nothing compared to God as proven in what he did through Jesus Christ. The decisive victory over the powers has already been won, Paul is saying, by God in Christ Jesus. As he says in Colossians 2, he triumphed over them in the cross, putting them to open shame. He disarmed them. They're wounded soldiers. That power of God is at work in the believer. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work within us. It's that very same power that brought us to life in Jesus Christ, and it's now that same power that sanctifies us and empowers us in the victory of Christ. In Ephesians chapter three, in a similar way, as Paul prays again, he, he latches onto this idea of strength and power. In verse 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner beings, the spirit you already possess, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work, listen church, within us. It's there. By the grace of God, the power has already been given to us, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen, church? 
say, but how? how? How do I access this? Ian, I mean, the battle is real. The temptations are real. The failures in my life are so many. And I just, I'm struggling to make any progress. And I feel like Satan is winning the battle so often in my life. What do I do? Listen, I, I wish I could give you some kind of a shortcut right now. I wish I could give you some pithy prayer you pray and that instantly, like, whoop, you're topped up, power level, power meter's way up. I wish I could give you some really easy formula to follow. But you need to understand this, that this strength that is available to the believer is available only as we continue to follow Jesus and cultivate life with him. That's how it's accessed. As we actually go God's way and seek him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as we give ourselves to intimacy with him, as we lean into him and on him, we experience in an ongoing way this enabling. As we embrace our weakness, he fills us with strength. As we embrace humility, he draws near to us. And in many ways, when we follow Jesus, listen, isn't this true? Haven't you experienced this in your life? When you follow Jesus more faithfully, the wrestling match with Satan often ramps up, doesn't it? You want to know the awesome news? So does the power he provides. So why don't I experience this power right now, Ian? Maybe it's simply because you're not going God's way. Maybe it's because you're walking your own way. Maybe it's because you're not living right now in obedience and God says that you access power, the blessing of, of obedience is power and maybe you're not living in obedience. Maybe you're not giving up on pursuing sin. Maybe you are loving the sin in your life, you're pursuing the sin of this world and it's sucking the life out of you and the power of God is being stopped up because you are pursuing your sin. Listen, maybe for some of you it's because you're not even saved. You got no power because you're not a follower of Jesus. You can't cultivate it because you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. And that's where you start this morning. You're like, I want that power. I don't want sin to rule me. I don't want Satan and his minions to have victory over me. I don't want to end up like them, apart from God for all of eternity, separated from the grace and kindness of God. I don't want to end up like them, suffering the wrath of God forever and ever and ever. I don't want that. And I guess what? I don't want that for you either. And God, guess what? God doesn't want that for you either. And so God actually, in his kindness, he invites you into his power and he wants to begin by raising you, your spiritual life, to life. Because right now, as Ephesians 2 says, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, but if you turn by faith and look at the finished work of Jesus, if you can look at the cross and you can see there your God, your king, dying in your place, paying for your sin, and then rising from the grave, exalted to the right hand of the Father where he sits in power and authority, if you can look there and you can turn and say, I desperately need you. I can't do it on my own, I'm a sinner and I need your grace and I see what you did, I see the price you paid and I want to surrender my life to you. If you do that right now, you will be filled with power and you will be raised to life. There are no shortcuts in the Christian life. We are called to be disciples of Jesus. That's what Paul has been unfolding throughout this entire letter. You say, say, give me something practical to do. Go home and memorize the book of Ephesians. You think I'm kidding. Get the word in you. Get what Paul has unfolded in this book into your heart and then follow it as faithfully as you can by the grace and power of the Spirit within you and watch how you continue to walk in increasing victory in your life.
promise is that we follow, where, when we, as we follow him, there is strength and enabling by grace that comes into our lives that allows us to stand. And it starts with receiving a strength that's not our own and continuing to live in a strength that's not our own. And yes, it's not easy. Yes, this fight in this wrestling match is tiring. And guess what, church? The story isn't over yet. We will wrestle and fight and it will be tiring and exhausting, but the story isn't over yet. We see, don't we, as we look around this world, a lot of evil. It's not hard for most of us in this room to embrace the reality that the enemy is real, that he is vicious, and it is so helpful to be reminded in this moment that the story isn't over yet. The decisive victory over the evil powers has already been won by God in Christ at the cross. Their authority has been broken. Their final defeat is imminent. The very existence of the church is evidence that the purposes of God are moving triumphantly to their climax. Jesus is coming again. Every once in a while, you know, do something that you wouldn't normally do. Flip to the end of the story. Flip to the end of your Bible and read it over and over and over again. Jesus wins, church. Jesus wins. He's the victorious one, and we are victorious in him. And when he comes, he will rewrite everything that has ever gone wrong. He will undo all the effects of evil in this world and will reconcile and restore all things. And we have in us the Holy Spirit who is the promise of this reality. The enemy cannot finally hinder the progress of the gospel. Everything will soon be subject to Christ. We are not urged to win the victory, church. No, we are called to stand. But we stand in the strength of his might. We stand in the victory and the power of the cross. It's not our strength, it's his, so we need not fear and we need not flee, but instead find ourselves standing in his armor, standing with his strength, standing in his victory, confident that as we do so, we his church and we his people are battle ready. No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in the judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Thank you, God, that though our enemy is great and mighty and powerful, you, our God and our King, is greater still. You are more mighty. You are more powerful. You are matchless in your grace. You are matchless in your power. And Father, we praise you this morning because we know the end of the story. We know what Christ has done to win the victory, and we know what will happen to the enemy. We long for the day of your return. We long to see you come in power and might. We long to see you set all things right. But until that day comes, we long to stand. We long to go to battle with you. We long to follow you, our King and our Master. Would you help us, we pray now, Lord, to stand in your victory and to experience it daily as we live our lives for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.
Amen.